South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And a very good morning to you. A little bit different morning than yesterday. Uh, yesterday we had a north breeze and drizzle, 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 which the weatherman certainly did not forecast. But uh, this morning, not quite as cool, not much breeze, but an absolutely beautiful morning out there. Kind of looks and feels like fall this morning. It's supposed to get pretty warm this afternoon, but, you know, this is Texas. If you don't like the weather, just wait a little while. It will change. Um, I've got a couple of open lines this morning. That's a little unusual. Most of the time on Sunday mornings, by the time uh, ter- Chris turns the mic on, uh, every all the lines are taken. But if you hurry, you might get through, and you know the number, 210-599-5555. And uh, so many things to talk about. Oh, man, it's time for fall vegetables. The fall flowers are absolutely spectacular. A great time of year for landscaping, tree planting, and of course, uh, CPS Energy Green Shade uh, Tree Rebate Program. All sorts of fun things going on. Yesterday was a big herb market, and um, I haven't talked to anybody that went down there, but uh, from all indications, it was just a, a great, great success uh, from uh, kind of secondhand reports that I got about it. But uh, <laughs> crowds were good. Everybody had a good time, and hopefully, just one more step in opening everything back up again. Uh, I know that. Jerry did call in early, so let's don't keep him waiting. Let's get back to the phone lines. Good morning, Jerry. Uh, good morning, Bob. Uh, good morning, sir. I want to talk about sandbars. Okay. Uh, I have uh, bought sandbars for the 26 years I've been here on the uh, on the Blanco River. Uh, mm-hmm. Had them under control uh, until the flood five years ago. And I spent... Uh, Three hours, Daniel and I spent three hours yesterday riding the Red Dragon. Uh, in, in South Texas, we call it a pear burner yeah. and, uh, use 20 pounds of propane and, you know, did a lot, but wound up just, you know, just exhausted. Right. Uh, my question is, uh, if you mow, uh, green sandburrs, uh, when are they viable? Once they get dry, once they start browning, uh, even if they're not fully brown, they are viable. Viable. When they get fairly hard, they are fairly viable. If they're really soft, no, those are probably not going to be able to germinate and grow. But um, they they are viable before they start coming off in uh, your pants leg. Um, so... Uh, it's, that's that's just what you know makes them. <laughs> I call them a real pain in the grass. And uh, I, the the only two things that I have found that really work, and uh, one of them was on a was on a field of acreage. The other was in my own front yard, uh, where I live up in the hill country. I put down the area in my yard. I put down a layer of compost, uh, and I believe that was fairly early spring. And that had the most remarkable pre-emergent effect I've ever seen. The area was probably 50 by 150, an area we used for croquet court. And the the birds were so thick, the dogs wouldn't walk in there um, the summer before. The next summer, and I did nothing other than apply the compost and little fertilizer, I think I pulled like four grass burrs the entire summer. So compost in a small area 
seems to have a great pre-emergent effect on them, but of course is not cost-wise, is not viable on big acreage. Uh, the one thing I did on about a seven-acre field that I had used for uh, for growing Sudan, and I mean, after I harvested the hay off of it, the grass burrs just took over, and once again, uh, even wearing boots and jeans, I, I wouldn't want to go in the place, and for various reasons, stop growing hay in that field, and uh, overseeded with some native seed. I think I got it from uh, uh, the guys over at Douglas King Seed. And as that came up, I kept the cows off of it for several months and let it get really well established. And within three years of rotational grazing, uh, not letting them eat it all the way down to the ground, I got to where I hardly have a sticker burr in that field. Rarely do I ever see a sticker burr. The, the sticker burrs are the weakest grass out there. And if you can manage to get your better grass going, whether it's St. Augustine or Bermuda in your yard or whether it's uh, native field grasses or even coastal Bermuda, they will choke the sticker burrs out. But uh, where, you know, where for one reason or another, it's hard to get the grasses established. They, uh, Mother Nature just hates bare soil, and that's what she seems to plant in the hill country. Hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is in the uh, small pecan orchard. Uh-huh. And uh, it's uh, it really has overtaken this year because I've been paying more attention to the other flood damage that I'm dealing with. So I understand how uh, that goes. Yeah, but yeah, if so, you're able to, um, if you're able to exclude uh, the cows for a while and give your, you know, fertilize, which your pecans, of course, appreciate. You probably already feed them, but uh, good organic fertilizer over that area, and maybe even again talk to Dean over at Douglas King. There, they have a. Uh, uh, a, a native seed mix, one specially for the hill country and one general Texas mix. And uh, you might think about throwing some of that out uh, late winter, early spring. And uh, if you get it up and growing, and who knows what the weather's going to do. It looks like we're heading into a drier time. But if you get it up and growing, it will it will eventually choke them out. Like, say, on uh, on my he- field of where I grew the Sudan, it took about three years, and every year it got better. By the third year, I could hardly find a, uh, a grass burr in there. Wow. So um, I, you, you're never going to do it with chemicals. You'll go to break the bank trying to do it with pre-emergence. Uh, and uh, it, it just the only way that I've ever found to get rid of them was to crowd them out. Well, I've been hand digging them and talking about breaking the bank. I broke oh, my back, basically. Yeah, so, no, that's, uh, yeah. That's 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 an an exercise in futility. <laughs> Thank you much. Appreciate it. I'll get fertilizer and seeds this spring. Very good. And and do you know? Talk to Stuart over at uh, uh, at Medina because he puts up that good growing green in one ton hampers, which make it a whole lot more economical. Uh, Fred Morales down at uh, you know at Morales Feed, he puts uh, up not quite as high grade of fertilizer. Doesn't have the micronutrients and things that uh, Medina's does, but uh, again, it's very very reasonable. Um, when you're, you know, when you're buying in one-ton hampers, it's uh, it's substantially less expensive, and uh, it'll do worlds of good for your pecans as well. But uh, well, that's what I use on my pecans is the growing green. So very good. Uh, well, that's a an easy fix. Thanks. 
<laughs> You're sure welcome, and uh, good luck okay. with it, Jerry. I, I feel your pain, so to speak, but not nearly as much as I used to. <laughs> my, my fingertips are raw. <laughs> yes, I... Yeah, it, uh, it, it the one educational thing about it, it will teach you to curse fluently if you didn't already know how to. <laughs> so, anyway, good luck with it. Let me know how you do. Take care. You do too. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, Angel's up next, and then it'll be Margaret and Ann. Good morning, Angel. Good morning. Um, I'm calling about a pecan tree. Uh, actually, I'm calling on behalf of my mother who lives down in Yorktown. And okay. she was telling me about a pecan tree that was very, very well established and been there for a lot, a lot of years. And she was wondering if right now was the time that for them to be pruned. And she wants to prune it because... Um, no, actually, it was just pruned. And she was wondering if maybe that had been a mistake because there was a lot of pecans that were already on those branches. Yeah. And she was kind of worried that that might have done a lot of damage to that very old tree. Probably not. It would not have been the time of year that I would have done it. It certainly, you know, lost a lot of pecan crop. Um, I hope they weren't excessive in it. You know, you never... Uh, on a mature tree, you never take away more than 30 or 40 percent of the leaves at any one time. I like to do it in the winter months when there are no leaves on the tree to begin with. But uh, the leaves are how the tree, you know, processes water, processes moisture. Uh, it loses excess moisture out through the leaves, and of course that's uh, or uh, along with oxygen. But uh, I hope they didn't prune it real severely. It would have been a very bad time of year, although I think every time of year is bad to do real severe pruning on a pecan. But, um, I mean, if if it's done, it's done. There's not a lot you can do. Uh, a little bit of that good organic fertilizer and moving into the dry season, uh, maybe wanting to do a little supplemental water if possible. But I've, I've seen trees absolutely butchered, and I'm sure hope that's not what they did to your mom's tree. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not her tree. It belongs to the church. The property mm-hmm. does. And it was one of their trees there. But she was really worried about that. Uh, okay, well, I'll just let her know what's, yeah, basically what's done is done. And we'll see how it goes from there. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and it's not that bad a time to prune. But excessive pruning on a stately old tree is just, I think it's just a crime against nature. So, uh, um, hopefully it didn't, it didn't get, just get butchered. And, uh, uh, but again, a tree, I, I had a pecan tree quite a few years ago when we had one of those exceptionally cold winters. Had a pecan tree actually about 80% of the top of it froze up in the hill country. And it was down to just a few major limbs in the trunk. And it came back to turn into a beautiful tree over the course of the next five or six years. So, uh, hopefully this tree will do the same, but, um, Hopefully, cooler heads will prevail next time it's time to prune, and they'll get yes. some, somebody with some sense to uh, supervise the job, <laughs> like your mom. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Uh, the other question I have is I've got sweet potatoes, and they put out a little, like, a purplish flower. Yeah, yeah, and that's normal. Does that, does that tell me that the sweet potatoes are ready to be harvested? No, it just tells you that they're blooming. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, it sweet potatoes don't ripen per se. 
Uh, a sweet potato, you know, when it's uh, small and they're, you know, really tubers, you're not, not rounded at right. all, but a sweet potato that's the size of a uh, golf ball or a tennis ball is going to taste the same as one that's the size of a football. And mm-hmm. as long as the longer the growing season is, the bigger the sweet potato will get. I saw a picture of one somebody had harvested in South Texas that weighed 43 pounds one time. I don't know how they even got it in the oven. So you can harvest those potatoes at any time, but uh, the blooming just tells you, hey, it's late summer, and that's what the plants do. They may make some seed, but it doesn't really. There's never a there's never a right time or a wrong time to harvest sweet potatoes. I do like to get them out of the ground, you know, before the soil gets excessively wet in the fall after the tops are frozen them back but uh, you just have to probe around with your finger or whatever uh, to see if they are a convenient size for you to harvest <laughs> I'll put it that way but uh, they'll just grow and grow and grow and like I say they can turn into uh, monsters that you really can't do much with except brag about but uh, the flowering just uh, doesn't really have a lot to do with telling you anything about how the tubers are doing Ah, okay 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 all right well thank you very much I appreciate it Good question. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. All right. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Goodbye. Okay. Uh, let's see here. I guess we better pause here and take a little break. Uh, Margaret's going to be up next, and then Ann, and then Robin. Right now, I get to talk to you about the Tank Depot. And once again, you know me talking about rainwater. It's just, uh, it, it's just the smart way to go. I worry more all the time about uh, up in the hill country what our water supply is going to do. In San Antonio, I worry about what the price of water is going to do. You've just started paying for all that big pipeline and all the other things SAWS has been doing, taking water from far, far away. But you know, if you have good tanks like you're going to find at the Tank Depot, you can collect an amazing amount of rainwater off of an average roof. And maybe you don't want to go all the way to turn that into drinking water. It's not difficult. It's just basically a UV filter and, uh, and you can drink some of the best water in the world but if you prefer just to use it on your landscape it is still a great source a great supplemental source of free water water that's free of chlorine water that's free of uh, gosh even the salt that you uh, may get from your from your water softener it's just good free water that can be used anytime any way you want to use it the secret is having quality tanks to store it in tank depot has tanks that don't even look like rainwater catchment tanks all sizes uh, all shapes and beyond rainwater tanks they've got chemical tanks storage tanks they've got transfer tanks bait tanks open top tanks tank depot should be your headquarters for all kinds of tanks Uh, retail locations over on southeast loop 410 just south of rigsby avenue weekends check them out online at tank-depot d-e-p-o-t tank-depot.com South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a very nice Sunday morning out there. Hope you're going to get out and enjoy. You know, it's going to be, morning especially is going to be nice. Be a little warm this afternoon, but uh, just a wonderful time of year. We're going to talk to Margaret and Ann and Robin and Shannon, and Margaret is up first. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning, Bob. Uh, Good morning. Stickerberg guy uh, brought this in mind. Uh, is is there a company I can call to get some type of grass seed for overseeding? Uh, absolutely. Um, are we talking? Uh, are we talking your 
your residential yard or acreage or what? Uh, how big an area you over here? Kind of acreage, a, a small acreage. It's an area I mow, but it's it's not yard. But I want to get the grass burrs out of there because they're slowly spreading. Oh yeah, yeah. And I would like. Um, to, my kind of a native grass that's short. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was wondering who could I contact. I would call Douglas King Seed Company here in San Antonio. Okay. And he might not, I don't know whether he'd want me to tell you this, but the owner's name is Dean, Dean Williams, incredibly nice guy, and I'm sure he's got good staff, but I like to go to the top. (laughs) You call Dean and tell him I told you to call, describe your situation, and he has both pure strain seeds and seed blends, and uh, quite frankly, he knows a lot more about it than I do when it comes to best time to apply, best time to overseed, and uh, they've been around probably for a hundred years. Uh, it, it's a great company that I've bought a lot of seed from over the years. Uh, they, if it's not convenient, they're they're right in southeast San Antonio, over near the corner of W. W. White and Gimbler Road, kind of not too far from the AT and T Center. But if it's not convenient for you to pick it up, he can ship it to your door. All right. Okay. The other question is uh, these uh, green hornworms. Uh, Mm-hmm. How long when you mix up BT does it stay effective? I mean, if, can I keep it for a second go-round on spring? Um, I, I wouldn't ever keep it more than a day or two because... Oh, okay. Um, you know, we never know what's in our water. Now, if oh. you if you were using rainwater, I would tell you, you could probably store it for quite some time. The BT concentrate has a shelf life of about 30 years, but uh, it, it just doesn't go bad. But once you've diluted it with water, uh, okay, there's so much crud in our water these days, I, I wouldn't count on it. Okay. Where does that worm come from, and what does it turn into? Anything? It's a big moth. It's an interesting moth. I, interesting is a better word than pretty. It's not as ugly as some moths are, but it, it's a fairly large moth, as you would probably guess from the size of the hornworm. Okay. And uh, one thing about using BT, and another reason that I wouldn't try to store it, is you make your BT about 20 times as effective if you add a little bit of molasses to it. BT is, of course, uh, a, a bacterial poison, as it were. Molasses is a very strong stimulant of the bacillus that produces that and other good bacteria. So I, I add molasses at the effective rate of about a teaspoon of molasses per gallon of finished spray. And I guess it's, I think it's probably because I do follow up with seaweed and molasses spraying through the season. Usually I spray once for the season and I don't have to spray again the entire season. Okay. Well, I've never really had an issue with them and I don't know why this year they just, uh, I, I don't know, I guess it's whatever lays them, just, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, as you discovered, they can too. eat a, they can eat a great deal in a short period of time. You can say that again, because uh, I picked up about almost a dozen. I mean, it's just a stemmy plant right now. So mm-hmm. um, I have a fiddle fig house plant that I have yes. sitting outside. Uh, can you tell me how much cold and it can take before I bring it in? Uh, it it can go all the way down to frost 
um, you know, which is going to be probably, I, I would protect it uh, when they're forecasting anything near 40 degrees or maybe even slightly above that. The, the whole ficus family, fiddle leaves, rubber trees, ficus benjamina, nidida, all of those are, are reasonably cold hardy, uh, but they won't take a freeze and you will damage the leaves. Well, a frost won't kill the plant, but it will certainly do foliar damage to the leaves. So anytime we're getting down in the low 40s, it's probably time for it to come inside. And of course, it needs to go in the sunniest possible place. The two secrets on fiddle leaves, besides not freezing, but the two secrets are lots and lots of light. There's no such thing as too much light. And then uh, never allow them to become bone dry. Water thoroughly when you water, when they're dry on the surface, water again. You follow those two rules, you should grow a beautiful fiddly fig. Oh, are you saying it could handle sunlight, direct sunlight? Absolutely. Indoors, it needs direct sunlight. Outdoors, um, I, you know, I would like to see it, considering it's a house plant, I mean, if it gets used to it, it'll take blazing hot sun all day long. But uh, as a general rule, when you have them outside, I would want them to have morning sun, afternoon shade. When you bring them inside, I would have them sitting directly in front of the sunniest window in your home. Thank you very much. That was it. Very good. Good questions. You get out and have a good Sunday, Margaret. Thank you. All right. Uh, Ann is going to be up next. Good morning, Ann. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. I have two Meyer lemon bushes that are in okay. pots. Uh-huh. And I'm not real sure why, but a couple of the limbs <laughs> on one of them has grown down at the bottom, has grown really, uh-huh. really long. And one time we had a big wind and my um, my plant blew over in the pot. And now I just have one really, really long limb. And it's, it's unbalancing the pot. I have to find something to lean it against to keep it from, you know, falling over. Is If I trim back this one really, really long limb, is that going to be a problem? Does that really, really long limb have big thorns on it? I don't know. Okay, because I always worry that anything that comes out from the base of the tree may be coming off of the rootstock rather than the grafted part of the tree. And you should not only cut it back, you should remove it completely as soon as you see it. Uh, one thing you will notice if you let it grow, you know, regular Myers lemons, uh, most of them have little short thorns that are about half an inch long, maybe three quarters of an inch. The uh-huh. rootstock, uh, sour orange or carizo, whatever it's grafted onto, those thorns can be an inch and a half or two inches long, and they will gradually take over. They, uh, your, your Myers lemon part of the tree will die out if you let the rootstock come out. So if it's coming out right from the base, I would probably remove it completely. Okay, if it's not coming out from the base, would it hurt to remove it? No, not at all. Not at all. If it's not coming out down near the base and you want to just shorten it up, that's fine uh, to bring the tree back into balance. Uh, I mean, I don't want you to sacrifice any more lemons than necessary. But if if it came out and grew quickly, that's pretty typical of what the rootstock does. And you don't want that on the tree at all. So examine it really carefully. If you find that it has a slightly flattened stem and or it has big thorns on it, uh, it needs to go in the compost pile. Oh, thank you so much. You're certainly welcome. You have a good Sunday, Ann. Thank you. Goodbye. 
All right, I guess uh, let me get a uh, break out of the way here, and then we will talk with Robin and Shannon and move right on down the line. Right now, I get to start talking with you again about the Freeze Miser. Uh, that is one of the most remarkable devices I have ever been introduced to, and Got a got a good look at it uh, fairly late into the season last year, but I put freeze misers on my faucets, faucets that I used to have to go out and drip any time we had a hard freeze protected where I live up in the hill country. Well, the freeze miser is a very unique um, product, I guess you would say. No batteries, no electricity, no anything like that. It it senses the temperature of the water inside of your hydrant. You screw this onto the hydrant, turn the water on, and nothing comes out. Doesn't waste water or anything like that. But it has a a physical, mechanical way of telling when the water starts getting really cold. And as that water gets down below 40 degrees, it begins to drip, just like we turn the hydrant on to drip it to keep it from freezing. Well, the freeze miser drips it automatically, and as soon as it warms back up again, it it shuts off totally. It does not waste water. In fact, a lot of people, and me included, put it just right up above my dog water pan outside, and that way the dogs get the benefit of any water that drips out, and I don't have to worry about dripping my hydrants. Uh, what I've done on a number of my hydrants is I put a Y connector on there, put the freeze miser on one side, and leave my hose attached to the other, and that way I can water when I want to, but I never worry about my hydrants freezing. I mean, they have used these things up north where the temperatures get wet below zero and they protect up there so if you have outside hydrants you worry about freezing you wind up dripping those hydrants or maybe forget to drip them and then they freeze and break well you need to know about the freeze miser you're going to find it available well we sell them here at shades of green a number of good nurseries do you'll also find them at uh, most of your better hardware stores don't think you find them in the box stores but good hardware store good nursery you check out the freeze miser it'll save you a a lot of trouble, give you a lot of peace of mind during the winter months. Freeze Miser. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right. Chris tells me Shannon dropped off, so maybe we'll talk to him later. We're going to talk to Robin and Marlis. And first of all, we talk to Robin. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, Bob. Thank you Good so morning. much for your program. Well, appreciate I it. have a I have a problem with ants, and they're in my uh, potted plants at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Like, I moved my pot, and all these ants are there, and I thought, oh, my gosh. Uh, And also, they're around my live oak tree at the bottom. Uh They're all in that soil, and they've piled it up around the trunks. Right. So what do I need to do? Well, you know, the, there, you really have two choices or three choices. Um, outside, if you want to put out a bait, uh, there's a bait called Come and Get It that's totally safe for pets and people. The fire ants pick it up, take it down, feed it to the queen, and everybody dies, as they say. Um, the problem with that, it can take several days to work. Uh, there is, um, there are a couple of things. There's a dry powder called diatomaceous earth. You can sprinkle around the pots and over the mound, and you want to kind of stir the ants up. They walk through it, and it literally starts cutting 
them up, and it's a pretty effective ant killer, but rarely will you kill the whole colony that way. What I usually do is make a liquid drench that I can just, you know, kind of pour over the mound or pour through the pot. Outside, it's uh, it, it's never an issue because a tree, you know, you're not really going to hurt the roots of a tree. The product I like is by uh, Nature's Creation. It's called Mound Drench. And you simply mix it up in your watering can, pour it over the mound, soaking the mound thoroughly, and the ants are all dead in five minutes or so. You have to be very careful in pots, though, because um, you can use orange oil, which is a strong solvent. You can use the mound wrench, which is based on rosemary oil. But you want to dilute it down uh, because if you get it too strong, you could burn the roots of the plants in the pot. So I usually reduce the dilution. I get it down to maybe a teaspoon of concentrate per gallon, and that's usually enough to kill the ants pretty effectively. Sometimes have to do it more than once. But you want to get it strong enough to kill the ants, but not so strong that it hurts your plants. So I just dilute it down to about a fourth of what the recommendations say. And uh, that way you can just pour it through the pots and it, it will very effectively kill the ants without hurting the plants. Now, if you have really delicate plants like uh, African violets or something, I might be concerned about doing that at all. But uh, most pot plants, uh, you, you can dilute down your mound drench and, and kill the ants without harming the plant. Okay. Um, and now I don't know that they are fire ants. Oh, they Th- almost certainly are. But fire ants? Yeah, that that sounds like fire ants. It, it, they're yeah. relatively small, blackish ants. Yeah. 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 The only other ant that I really ever see is one of the wood ants or carpenter ant. They're a little bit bigger. They're very definitely a different color. There's a really big one. It's kind of a golden color. And then your standard carpenter ant that usually is in the plant rather than in the soil. It's a, sort of a red and black combination. But... 19 times out of 20, in fact, probably 99 times out of 100, they are fire ants. Okay. Do fire ants, are there different varieties of them? There are a couple of varieties of them. We actually have a native fire ant, which is a very small little blackish ant, um, and it's a nuisance but not a real problem as far as getting bitten by it. Uh, the imported red fire ant, although they're not red, I don't know why they call them red fire ants, but the imported fire ants are the ones that are just trying to take over South Texas and, and a lot of the South in general. And uh, they, I, I guess they do a few good things. They've just about eliminated ticks from the hill country, but they are... They're a real issue. They almost waterproof the soil. They're not good to have around your plants, and they can be very, very painful to uh, get into. And if you happen to have an allergic reaction to them, they can, their bite can be dangerous. Fortunately for most of us, it's just a lot of pain, a lot of itching, and a lot of comfrey is what I use when I accidentally get into them. But, uh, um, yeah, the fire ants are not something you want to – they're not your friends, I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much. I will try those. And you let me know how it works for you, Robin. Thank okay, you. Okay, thank you. Certainly. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, let's go ahead and talk to Marlis. Uh, good morning, Marlis. Hi, hi, Bob. I have a question on Myers lemons. It's a little different from the one that previous one the lady asked about. Okay. Mine has gotten really tall. They're probably mm-hmm. ten feet tall, and I'd like to trim them back so that they're not so humongous. 
they're loaded with lemons right now. So can I trim back the trees that are the, the, the limbs that don't have lemons or should I wait till they bloom next year and then trim them all back? Are these planted and in the selected. ground? They grow, they grow in a big pot. They're for... in a, a raised planter bed, so basically, okay. kind of in okay. the bed, in the ground. I would hold off until spring to prune, and the reason is that when we prune, um, and we can get as technical as you want about it, but let's just say that it causes a a big burst of growth to come out. Uh, at the points that are pruned. It has to do with the concentration of a of an ox and a hormone up there. And whenever the, and, and lemon trees want to grow pretty much year-round, so whenever you prune them, you're going to stimulate a burst of new growth. That new growth is much, much more susceptible to cold damage. Myers lemons That's usually go down in the yeah, mid twenties, but boy, that new that new growth will just fold up and turn black at you know thirty one degrees. So, I like to wait until we're into a little bit warmer period. Um, so typically, and I do like to prune all my citrus, but uh, especially lemons, I like to prune them while they're in bloom. That way, I can take away the limbs that have the fewer flowers, and therefore, I'm you know still going to get a good crop of lemons. In your case, where you're just trying to reduce the stature of the tree, uh, you unfortunately you're probably going to sacrifice the number of lemons that uh, it's going to disappoint the birds, not you, because you probably couldn't get up to pick them anyway. Right. But, uh, right. Yeah, pruning. Around the time they come into bloom or slightly after that, that's typically late January, early February. I would go ahead and prune them at that time because that way the tree will be able to put its energy into fruit that it's going to be able to develop, the fruit that you anticipate will stay on there the whole season. So I'd, okay. I'd try to try to get ahead of the real fruit development, but uh, we're not going to assign a particular day or hour. Just sometime late January, early February is going to be the best time okay. to do that. Okay. And we'll watch the weather to make a little bit more accurate guess. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Well, it is my pleasure. I appreciate the call. Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, let me get a break out of the way here. Robert will be up next. I get to talk with you about Wild Birds Unlimited. Again, one of my favorite stores. I just enjoy going into Wild Birds Unlimited. And from time to time, I'll go in there without making any purchase in mind, but rarely do I get out without buying something while I'm there because they have so much neat stuff. I do enjoy birding. I'm not as avid about it as some people, but I can tell you, Wild Birds Unlimited has the cleanest and best feeders. I've given a number of them as gifts, I'll tell you that. And where you're looking for seed, their seed is the freshest and best around. Uh, It's just they get shipments four times as often as most people do. And better still, the folks there, Kyle and all of his staff, are so knowledgeable, they can recommend which seed mix will do best for you. Some people want to feed the doves and things like that. Other people want to exclude the doves and feed the smaller songbirds. Well, it comes down to offering them the right meal so that the birds that you want to feed come in. And, oh, there are so many so many beautiful migratory birds passing through right now. And don't forget your hummingbirds. They're tanking up, getting ready for their long flight southward. Wild Birds Unlimited has great hummingbird feeders with built-in ant stoppers, and you can get bee guards as well if you like. 
Wild Birds Unlimited is so much more than just a bird store, though. Great place for tilly hats, great place for gifts, great place for optics of all sorts, great place to visit any time. They're open seven days a week. They're out there in the shopping center at the corner of Northwest Military Highway and Hebner Road, right there on the side facing Northwest Military Highway. Easy to find. Once you've been there, you will go back over and over. Wild Birds Unlimited. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Actually, you have a line open. I think people are sleeping in a little bit on Sunday morning, so uh, I know it'll get quite busy as we move on into the show, but if you've been reluctant to dial for fear you get a busy signal, you probably get through right now. Uh, we are going to talk to Robert, and then we're going to head up Branson Way and talk to Ron. Uh, good morning, Robert. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm good. How about you today? Good, good. Uh, got a question about a, let's see if I pronounced this, Silosma? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, okay, great. Um, uh, it's about 10 years old. I let it kind of grow out of control. It's huge, probably 15 feet tall, 12 <laughs> by 12 round. It will do that. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful, but uh, notice the center is really uh, void of leaves, and I'd like to kind of trim it down and get it to a, a wall shape. Um, mm-hmm. How and when can I do that? Um, again, just like talking with my previous caller on her lemon tree, I don't really recommend pruning heavily at this time of year because, again, you stimulate new growth, which can then freeze. But uh, early spring, you know, February, early March, you can be pretty brutal with that silosma, and it will come out in a hurry. And um, so that that would be the time I would do it. If if you want to prune it so vigorously that you're going to take most of the foliage off, I don't normally recommend pruning quite that much at any one time. If it does need to come way down, what you do is pick about half the long limbs, cut them back, and then when they've started to sprout out, when they've started to uh, form some new leaves, then you go back and cut off the second half that needs to be cut off. Or you can do it by thirds. Uh, I've done it both ways. Generally, it takes about... Oh, a couple of months. So uh, if this one, let's say you've got 12 really long limbs you need to cut back, you could cut four of them now, cut another four of them a couple of months from now, and then cut the final four a little bit later. On the other hand, if you can cut it way back without taking off more than about 40% of the leaves, then you'd go ahead and cut it back as much as you need to all at once. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm in no hurry to cut it back. Uh, so springtime, I can do a little bit at a time. It's not a problem. Yeah. Yeah, but okay. but you know you understand uh, that you're doing a few limbs at a time. You're not in effect cutting a little bit off individual limbs. You're not going to take a limb and cut a foot off now and then cut another foot off later. You're going to take a few of the limbs all the way down to where you want them to branch out. But you're not going to take all of the limbs at one time. You're going to go through and cut cut a number of them way back, and then when they start to branch out down at that level you want them to, then you can go ahead and cut some more of the ones that are too tall. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Perfect. Okay, Perfect. very good. Uh, very good. Uh, second quick question, uh, the basics are 101 of shishito peppers. Uh, what are they like? 
Gosh, Shishitos like lots of sun. Uh, they like rich, uh, you know, they, they like fertilizer. They like plenty of water. Shishitos are one of the most productive peppers I've ever grown. And they're fun because they never make a big plant. I mean, even jalapenos can get waist high. Little Shishitos rarely get more than 12 to 15 inches tall. And they will load up. I've picked 30 peppers at a time off of one plant. So the care is just about like most others. Wait a little later in the spring to plant them. Uh, peppers always like it a little bit warmer. But when they get full sun, I space them out about 18 inches apart in uh, in my row. And beyond that, I follow up with I, I, I use a dry granular fertilizer at the time I plant, or actually a little beforehand. And then during the growing season, every two to four weeks, I'll hit them with a good liquid organic fertilizer and. I keep a lot of people very happy with shishito peppers. Oh, they're delicious. They're great. <laughs> they are wonderful. <laughs> okay, Bob, thank you for your time. I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, it's my pleasure, Robert. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. And let's hit up Branson, Missouri way. Good morning, Ron. Hi, Bob. Uh, it's a very nice, cloudy Sunday morning here, and we're all praying for rain, <laughs> I oh, suppose, like man. you are, too. That's no different than Texas. You may be in for a little cooler weather. I was uh, oh, yeah. uh, emailing back and forth with friends in Wyoming and looking at their forecasts, and a week from now, I think I saw they were forecast to have 7 degrees, so who knows how far east that cold will make it and how far south, but it looks mm-hmm. like this is uh, toward the end of uh, next week or the beginning of the following week. So just be aware that, uh, as frequently happens, may fall may arrive sort of all at once. <laughs> yeah, we had 32 here uh, Thursday evening or Thursday night, so we yeah. had just a little bit of frost. But uh, <laughs> quickly... Uh, um, I have a, a turnip that I bought from Baker Creek. That's mm-hmm. uh, a seed company. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh, yeah, I know Baker Creek. In fact, I heard one of their principals give a lecture one time, an uh, outstanding, outstanding lecture, and I've, I've bought a bunch and enjoyed a bunch of their seed. Uh, well, this variety is called Tokenashi. I guess that's either Japanese or Chinese, I'm not sure. Have you, have you any idea of what the size of that is? There's no mention on the envelope that I got. There's a picture of them, but there's no comparison. In other words, if they had them holding them in their hand or something, you'd get an idea if they are were radish-sized or what. Are they advertising this as a shishito pepper? No, turnip. Oh, oh tur- I'm sorry, turnip. Um, shoo. I, I can't tell you for sure. Turnips are another one of those things that you want to pick them while they're still crisp. They will get very pithy, very woody if they get excessively large. Um, yeah. Most of the Asian varieties are, uh, they're not a huge turnip. They're going to be, oh gosh, bigger than a golf ball, but smaller than a softball. Yeah, we uh, when we lived in northern Illinois, we dealt with a, a seed company, Jung Seed Company, from up in Wisconsin, and they had a variety called Tokyo Cross, mm-hmm. and uh, they mentioned on the label the uh, size of them, but that that neither here nor there. Um, what has been happening is the le- something is just devouring the leaves on these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, all there is after a day or two, I see holes, and then after that, 
all that's left is the vine part of the of the leaf. All of the body of the leaf is is pretty much gone. Would you have any idea what that might be? Does the eating seem to occur from the outside of the leaf inward, or does it appear as holes toward the middle of the leaf and just get ever larger? Uh, I would say middle-wise more. It's probably a beetle of some sort. If they, if you were seeing eating from the outside in, it would almost certainly be a caterpillar. But uh, there are a bunch of different beetles that are very That's fond it. of yeah. foliage. Yeah, I've looked and looked and, and uh, turned the leaves, what's left of them, over and looked at mm-hmm. the stems. I haven't seen any insect. It, would you make a, have a recommendation of something that's food safe that I could apply that might uh, uh, work against those uh Problem? You can you can try diatomaceous earth. My first would choice first choice would probably be spinosad soap, and uh, it's pretty good against most of the beetles. And of course, we fight more uh, leaf-footed bugs than we do most of the beetles. But it it's the best I have found. If you go out at night with your flashlight, that's when these critters are doing the majority oh. of their damage. And you may okay. um, you know be careful of other things that go. Uh, not necessarily bump, but, but you know, yeah. things that you wouldn't encounter, want to encounter after dark. But take flashlight out, and I bet you'll find them. And uh, other than your foot, uh, I think spinosad soap is where I would start. All right. I think I'll give that a try. Appreciate your information so much as always. Thanks, Bob. Well, it's always a pleasure. Good to talk to you. And, uh, you know, keep keep your firewood close at hand. It's gonna It's going to be here before we know it. I'm sure. Thank you. You're sure welcome, Ron. Thank you. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. Oh, I tell you, hearing the news just go on and on and on about COVID. I mean, we need to be careful. We need to exercise good caution. But I'm so tired of people complaining without proposing any any better solutions. Uh, one thing very interesting, this uh, last week I had uh, the pleasure of having an extended visit with our wonderful mayor up in Bernie and uh, talking with him, <laughs> you think this is the first time we've faced anything like this. He went back through the newspapers and uh, I guess you wouldn't call them press releases but things and found out that we did indeed shut down Bernie and shut down San Antonio too I believe back in 1918 with the uh, Spanish flu. So this is not the first time we've had a pandemic and it's not the first time we've had a shutdown and uh we came through it and got back to the life we enjoyed hopefully we will do that and uh hopefully we'll all come through it with without severe consequences but anyway i'd rather talk gardening than talk about that stuff and we're going to talk to uh, david unfortunately his folk game gave out i guess on him when he was up next but uh so it will be sharon and laura and steve and regina and sharon is up first good morning steve uh, sharon yeah, uh, good morning, Bob. Um, good I was morning. wondering if there was a resource uh, for organic ranching. There is I know more Texas than one. A&M, uh, does not no. really, they're not into organic, so they're probably <laughs> they, funded by the chemical companies. You know, they're you got that. You've got that exactly yeah. right. Um, there is a uh, there is a publication actually called Acres A C R E S Acres U S A. And they are uh-huh. big into, uh, they're the ones that really championed, uh, uh, rotational grazing. They have gotten, uh, probably they are leaders in sustainable agriculture. 
Uh, you can contact them, and their magazine is uh, is just outstanding. And they put on, they're doing webinars periodically, and, uh, you know, they actually in the past have hosted seminars, but, of course, we're not, not able to do those right now. So Acres USA is a very good source. Another very good source is uh, Rodale, R-O-D-A-L-E, the Rodale Institute uh, up yeah. in uh, uh, Pennsylvania. And they actually have trial farms in uh, a couple other parts of the country now. I uh, have had the pleasure of meeting and visiting with their director. And Rodale is just, I mean, they're the guys that have been doing it longest. And they are outstanding, although they are more more into uh, field crops than they are into grazing. Uh, grazing and, you know, ranch management is going to be more the purview of acres, whereas uh, actual production of crops is probably going to be more Rodale. I study them both, and I find them both fascinating. Um, there are uh, there are some other places. Uh, Howard Garrett on his DirtDoctor.com website, he actually put... Uh, Put out a book on uh, on organic management for the professional, dealing with things like golf courses and large properties. And while he doesn't uh, go nearly as much into specific techniques such as rotational grazing, um, uh, he does talk a great deal about soil management and improving the life of the soil. So, uh, DirtDoctor.com will have a lot of information there for you, but. Uh, uh, in order, I probably would check Acres USA, I would check Rodale, and I would check DirtDoctor.com would be good starting points. There used to be an organization here in Texas called the Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, and strictly volunteer, and as such, uh, it's, it suffered its ups and downs, and I don't really know exactly what their status is. Uh, at this point, but uh, it might be worth Googling just Texas Organic, T-O-F-G-A, Texas Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. That one might be lo- worth looking at as well. Okay. All right, great. This gives me a lot of information. I, I really appreciate it. Well, it's, uh, you know, it it is something that I wish more of the world would practice. And this Malcolm Beck so much because he was, toward the end of his life, he was uh, really getting more and more into working with a lot of the farmers and, and ranchers around and uh, um, just getting them away from, you know, doing it properly is sort of an all-or-nothing thing. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to use Roundup one minute and then put organic fertilizer on the next. <laughs> That's what, right. well, unfortunately, I'm... you know, uh, some people try to go that way. But but check out Acres. You can even give them a call, and uh, they have some wonderful books. Now, I will tell you, Acres USA has probably the best assortment of books available for purchase. Uh, I bet you they have a hundred good books out there on everything from soil management to specific crops. And uh, you'll have your winners reading the first time you go through their book list. You will, as I am. I've, I've got a stack of books sitting on my coffee table waiting for those long winter evenings, which is when I get most of my reading done. But it's a great question, and I hope you'll share with us what you find uh, to be the best source for, for your situation. Okay. Well, I just have a, a young farmer that thinks uh, A&M, their recommendations hung the moon. So I just keep thinking, oh, no. <laughs> so yes, well, anyway, I'm going to yeah. suggest all of these. Uh, suggest all of those. And, you know, the the I call it myth-busting. 
and that's one of the things I find myself doing frequently with uh, people, you know, like like this young one who just thinks that A and M is the ultimate answer, and their standard line is, you know, well, we can't feed the world with organics; it just won't work. It's fine for the home garden. And that's when I would love to get them in touch with Rodale, because Rodale, uh, they're doing experiments, you know, 100 acres, 200 acres at a time. And I believe it was corn. Uh, we were actually went up to Pennsylvania and visited with them a couple of years ago. But uh, they... They are right adjacent to uh, chemical car- corn farmers and potato farmers. And I, I think what I remember was on the corn, and his conventional guys next door were getting about uh, $3 a bushel for their corn, and they were making like 200 bushels per acre. The Rodale folks, uh, with less input, were getting about 20% more uh, bushels per acre, and they were getting like $12 a bushel for their corn as opposed to $3 a bushel for the conventional corn. So it is practical, economical, and um, uh, very economically feasible on large acreage as well as small. And uh, Jeff Moyer is the current head of Rodale and great guy. I wouldn't hesitate to uh, you know, contact him directly and let him point uh, out the things that Rodale could do. Uh, they even have uh, summer intern programs and things like that for young farmers and gardeners that really want to learn how to do things properly. So don't know what the future holds for your family, but uh, there, there's lots of opportunity out there. Well, I will give him this information. Hopefully he'll listen to me. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> maybe, maybe by the third time he will, but uh, you let us know if there's anything we can do to help. And uh, encourage him to try some own experience, experiments in your backyard. I think he will see, as I and many of my friends have seen, that uh, it really does work. You really do get better tasting produce, more of it, and a whole lot less input. And uh, you try that on a small scale, and then you... If you have the opportunity, you expand it to a large scale. So anyway, uh, good luck with you, Sharon, and let me know how things work out. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's move on and talk to Laura. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm um, good. Wonderful. I'm too. I'm off. Um, about six weeks ago, I called you, and I wanted some pretty fast-growing trees in my backyard, and you suggested the crepe myrtle, the Boshams Party Pink, um, mm-hmm. and we bought in the 15-gallon uh, things, and we got four of those, okay? Now, okay. Um, we planted them, and I think they were a little shocked, you know what I mean, and they had dropped a bunch of leaves each at first, but they're still going, and you tell me, water, 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 and I did it every day, I mean, seriously, for a few weeks, and then I cut down some. Now, as I'm doing that, you know how they have those little thready roots? Uh-huh. Some of them are now exposed on top just from watering, and you know how it sinks. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Do I need to cover those with more dirt, or are they going to be no, fine abs- like that? absolutely not. In fact, you may Thank need to you. cut away some of them because you want to have that trunk exposed to air all the way down to where the major roots start flaring out from the bottom. Okay. And okay. Uh, probably about 99% of the crepe myrtles come to the nurseries buried too deeply in the pots. And um, so you need to be sure 
that uh, you know that you've removed enough soil down to where you've exposed the roots down to this flare and giving those little fibrous roots developing up above no that's not a good thing and you never ever ever pile anything up around the trunk of a crepe myrtle or most any other tree now palm trees are a whole different story in cycads but all of our woody trees uh, grow at much much better and much healthier many fewer problems where you keep that trunk exposed and my husband was going to put compost on them today, so he just put them. Put them. Yeah, down. put it over the root system. Compost as a mulch over the roots is ideal, but so never I do it. Do I need to back first? No. Okay. Well, wonderful. Yeah, but uh, but never up around the trunk. That trunk needs to have air circulating around it twenty four seven. And I guess that was my next question: Could I have overwatered them and drowned them or anything? Unlikely, uh, especially since you were doing it uh, early on. Um, and, and things about watering. Water doesn't hurt anything, but if things stay too wet, if they stay too saturated, that drives oxygen out of the soil and the plants suffer from lack of oxygen, not necessarily from too much water, although they are certainly related. Uh, in the warmer months, those crepe myrtles are taking up and using a huge amount of moisture. And it takes, you know, months or even a couple of years for them to really get those roots spread into the surrounding soil. So those plants were sucking up and using a huge amount of water. Now, uh, you mentioned you have cut back on watering. You should cut back on the frequency, but not on the volume. You still want to water very thoroughly when you water. I, I do and water as the, like... Go ahead. Yeah, and as they drop their leaves this fall, which is perfectly normal, uh, they will use even less water because there's less transpiration. You'll get to the point you're probably not watering, I don't know, every, every 10 days, every two weeks, something like that through the winter months. But I doubt very much that you've caused any problem up to this point. Okay, thank you so much because I didn't know if we were doing it right or wrong. And they do leaves, lose their leaves uh, during the winter? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. And usually, especially once they get established, they actually have some of the prettiest fall color. Uh, Bashams will be mainly yellow to gold colors. Uh, some of the red varieties, uh, their leaves are, you know, just crimson. Uh, very, very attractive in the fall, but uh, perfectly normal for them to lose every leaf probably okay. within the next four to six weeks. Okay. And I got the party pink because uh, that's what you told me to get. Mm -hmm. And one They're of them the did say Boshams times something or else, and I don't know if that's a hybrid or if that's the way they come, but we did our best I... to do that. Oh, I think you did just fine. Bill Basham was uh, one of the horticulturists in Houston for many years, and that crepe myrtle was named in his honor, so... Um, uh, it's it's just it, it's the biggest of the bunch. It's the one that truly does make a tree. You know, crepe myrtles range all the way from miniatures that only get a foot tall. Uh, Bashams is pretty much at the other end of the scale at about 35 feet, but they're rapid growing, free blooming, and where you're looking for a pretty tree, uh, they're the best of the crepe myrtles for a big tree. Okay, I have one more question, and this is kind of strange. Okay, my husband bought. Two little, they're called drumstick trees, and I we planted them here. I know nothing about them, and, you know, apparently they're edible and all that, but are they going to make it here, do you think? Uh, I'm around Rockport. I've never heard. Yeah, I've never heard of a drumstick tree. <laughs> do, okay. do you have a, a botanical name? 
or uh, a technical No, I don't, for... but he just pulled it up, and they're supposed to get big, and this one said it got four foot, and they're, set, they're considered an herb, I found out, but I don't okay. know nothing about them, okay? That's, <laughs> I, I've never I heard. That's no the problem idea. with common names. Ooh, well, if you, well, we if you can, if you come up with a, if you come up with a botanical name, go ahead. Well, I, on Google they have the botanical name, but I don't know it right off. And uh, mainly have yellow <laughs> flowers, and I don't know what they are. But we got an extra couple of them. What are they? Morgia, <laughs> Morgia, Moringa. Morgia. Oh, moringa, moringa. moringa. Um, yeah, they may or may not be cold hardy here. They, uh, okay, if we I'm have not- a mild winter, they will make it. It's uh, if we have a cold winter, they will need protection. But they they will grow rapidly. They'll be an interesting tree until they freeze. They they say they grow rapidly, and they can some of them four yeah. foot, some of them twelve foot. But anyway, they're still alive so far. We'll see what happens. Okay. Well, Thank we'll watch the so winter, protect much. them if it gets real cold, and you get out and have a good Sunday. Well, thank, <laughs> thank you so you. much. You're the best. Uh, well, I appreciate that. All right. Uh, better get a break in out here. It will be, uh, let's see, next up is going to be Steve and then Regina and then Sharon. Right now, though, I get to talk to you for a moment about Rhonda's Nature's Way. Yes, I was over at Rhonda's Nature's Way yesterday picking up some supplements for my business partner. You know, I don't just tell you about these people. I believe in these folks, and I've known Rhonda and her family for uh, more years than I really like to think about, but uh, they're simply the best in the business when it comes to helping you with supplementation, with quality vitamins, with things that will improve your health naturally. And given the choice, you know, there are times you need pharmaceutical medications, you need allopathic medicine, but... You know, on a day-to-day basis to maintain your energy, to sleep well, to avoid digestive issues, to have, uh, to just feel good, you'd be amazed how many natural products there are that will help you. And Rhonda, well, she's just the best of the best when it comes to helping you with that. Products on her shelves are tested. They are things that she is familiar with, just a whole cut above anything you're going to find on the shelves of a grocery store or a commercial pharmacy. And they practice other things as well. The light therapies, both red light and beamer light therapies, well accepted by the medical community for their amazing healing properties. Reflexology has been around for a long, long time. They do that at the Northside store only, and it's an amazing experience I will recommend to you highly. But just if you're sitting there thinking, you know, I wish I felt better. I wish I had a little bit more energy. I wish I slept better. You need to go by and talk to Rhonda about things that she has that will help you do that naturally. Closed today. They're closed every Sunday, but they're to help you Monday through Saturday. Southside stores on Southwest Military, Northside store in the center there at Callahan and I-10, kind of across from Sprouts, Rhonda's Nature's Way. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Steve and Regina and Sharon and Brian, and Steve is up first. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bob. Um, This week I'm going to be picking up... uh, a cedar elm in a 15-gallon container. <clears throat> and I'm just wondering about how often I should be watering that over the next couple of months, assuming it's going to stay kind of dry. Okay. Well, you know, the best thing I can tell you is every time you think about it, pick up the hose and just spray up and down the trunk and limbs because a tree, a young tree like that, will absorb a great deal of moisture directly through the bark, probably more than it does through the roots. 
Okay. Uh, as far as how often you water the soil, that's going to depend on the wind. It's going to depend on the temperature. It's going to depend on the sun, and it's going to depend on whether or not the uh, cedar elm has dropped its leaves because of course it's going to drop all of its leaves sometime in the next uh, probably three or four weeks so uh, until it drops its leaves it will need to be watered more often so my rule as always is water super thoroughly when you water and then just feel the soil when it feels you know dry right at the base of the tree when you can stick your finger down and that soil feels like it's drying out then it's time to water it thoroughly again uh, of course, you heard me say many times when you first plant it, dig that hole, fill it with water, be sure it all drains out fairly quickly because you want to be real certain you're not just sticking the tree down into a bathtub. But uh, oh, yeah. I will tell well, you on our... average... <clears throat> go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, on average, it's probably going to be every two or three days, but... Um, okay. <laughs> you know, here it's, it's you know, 50 degrees one morning, and uh, then it's up to 90 the next afternoon. So it's real hard to try to do anything by the calendar. And the windier it gets, of course, the more moisture uh, the wind will pull out of the trees. So, like I say, spray the top of it frequently. Water the soil when it's good and dry, about a knuckle deep. Okay, yeah, because this is a, a hole. I had that a large growth seed that blew over in that microburst. So it's a pretty big crater, okay. about five feet across and several feet deep. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I filled it in with the old, uh, you know, the native soil that was there, and then I put a little bit more soil, and I'm gonna plant it up, you know, so it's a little bit above ground because I know it's gonna settle a little bit. You know, check roots. So oh, yeah. I'm wondering, that's, that's I just think real... there's probably gonna. Go ahead. <clears throat> It, it would be a good idea, actually, to pack the soil in the bottom because uh, right. uh, it's going to settle not a little. It's going to settle a lot. So uh, I would uh, I would put your size 11s on and uh, get in there and stop up on down on it a little bit because it's going to settle some anyway. Planting it high is, is a great idea, but I will tell you 99% of the people would not plant it high enough. So yeah, right. do pack the soil in the bottom of the hole. Plant it up at least a couple of inches, and the tree will love you for it. It's it's uh, impossible really to plant a tree too high, but it's really easy to plant it too deep. Okay, well, I was just concerned about the water kind of wicking away into the surrounding soil since it's such a big hole. But I'll just keep an eye on it with the uh, with the moisture test and I'll check it out. So I well, just and other... and you're doing ex- yeah. Go ahead. Um, about the garlic, I have always had pretty good luck until last year when the garlic didn't really do anything. I the tops were big, but it didn't. It it just I pulled them up and there was almost nothing there. Um, I guess mm-hmm. I heard you tell somebody a couple of weeks ago they just more water and more fertilizer. Um, what then? This is about the right time to be planting garlic, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. October is the month for planting garlic. Weather was weird last year. I had the crappiest garlic I've ever had, and I generally grow pretty good garlic, and mine was about like yours. And looking back, I had a few other things tugging at my time schedule, and I probably did not water and fertilize as often as I should. So I also think that the garlic, the the bulbs simply were not as good quality because uh, I, I had a, a, you know, we were buying from what we thought was a good source, but I had probably no more than 40 or 50 percent of my little bulb that sprout, and in the past it's, you know, close to 100 percent. So I think it was a combination of factors 
last year. Uh, checking the garlic this year, it looks better. And uh, I tell you what, if, if mine hasn't sprouted within three or four weeks, I'm going to go back and plant a bunch more. Okay, and what do you think about two inches deep or a little bit less, a little bit more? It seems like that's what I do. Sort I'd probably of go, yeah, I'd probably go about an inch deep. Yeah. Okay. And, I thought uh, maybe they would because I, you know, I, that, you know, I, and I, try, I try to spread them out about six to eight inches apart. Uh, closer than that, I guess they could compete with each other, but. Um, basically, you know, I the way I plant garlic, I don't open up a furrow, put the cloves in, and then uh, you know, and cover back up again. I my soil in my garden has gotten relatively loose over the years, and I pretty much are just I'm sticking my index finger down about a right. knuckle and a half deep, putting the putting the little garlic in there, and uh, just firming the soil over the top of it. So yeah, I I don't go as as much as two inches. I think one inch is probably going to be a little bit better as far as depth. For planting okay well let's hope we both have better garlic this this time around then. we'll right. compare we'll compare notes along the way okay thanks a lot bob always appreciate it Bye. well always my pleasure thank you for the call steve <laughs> goodbye yeah, all right regina is up next good morning regina hi good morning <clears throat> i have uh, good morning on the theme yes keeping on the theme of cypress i mean not cypress uh okay citrus. And um, Citrus, I have okay. a Reseda or Reseda question. Reseda? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So on my Cypress, um, the question um, has to do, they are in a greenhouse. Um, I did uh, fight with a little bit too much heat and got a, um, a shade cloth and um, cooler put in it over the summer. They They haven't flourish and I'm on the verge of wondering whether since it is in a greenhouse I might trim them all back I do have the Mexican line a Myers lemon um, a Satsuma Miho and a completely leafless now um, ruby red um, ruby red, red, red. Uh, well, yes, and I, actually, in all honesty, one. Yeah, <laughs> I I would keep those uh, citrus outside, except for really cold weather. I think uh, you know yeah. any kind of shade cloth at all. Citrus prefers full sun, and okay. um, well, that, that you know inside a greenhouse, you almost yeah. So. Uh, even now, I, you know, assuming they're not in impossibly large containers, I'd pull them back out. We may have another six weeks of weather before it really gets cold enough uh, that they're really going to need protection because uh, your Satsumas, for instance, Satsumas will go down to 20 degrees without damage. Myers Lim will go down to about 26 without damage. Kumquats will go down into the low 20s without damage. So, uh, um, all those trees are going to be happiest outside. Now, the Mexican lime will need to go in first because it's most cold sensitive. But uh, I'm going to leave things out as much as possible. And on average, um, at least in San Antonio, it'll be a little more frequently in the hill country. But the past several winters, there have only been about six or seven nights out of the entire winter that I felt like was necessary to protect citrus. So much as I love greenhouse for growing a lot of things, uh, citrus are not among the things I would keep inside. 
Okay, that's good to know. Um, specifically on that ruby red, it's a citrus paradisi. Um, uh-huh. Have I just locked that all together? It, it's pretty much a twig now, and it's standing four four feet, and it's very slowly okay. lost that. Um, part of it was, um, as I say, I thought it was the intense heat, um, but uh-huh. also it, it is in one of those bags. That was an experiment, one of those, um, and uh-huh. I think it's staying too dry. I don't know what I've done. Well, I were it mine, I probably would transfer it to a pot. I would move it back outside. Water it with a little Super Thrive, maybe a little bit of Garrett juice. I've seen Super Thrive bring back things that I thought were dead, and yet they came out. You're going to need to watch very carefully because the rootstock is what is always wanting to sprout out, and that's not what you want. Anything that sprouts out right at ground level you want to go ahead and trim that back. But uh, I've seen citrus drop every leaf and still survive and come back out. So I did it with some Super Thrive. I move it back outside. I would moisten the what is left of the trunk, the stem, the limbs, whatever. You know, I'd be missing those things daily or even two or three times a day. And we'll know in about a month or so whether it's going to come back out or not. Okay. Okay. The the And, and the... The reason they didn't come back out was they they were too heavy, and so. Um, yeah. um, uh, but I will if I've got you think about that much more time left. I, it's worth getting them out then. The other thing on the on the receva, I uh-huh. um, it, it's always spindly. Is it just a wispy little bush? And and it is. Again, growing in a pot because I'm the person that lives out here in West Bear County and fights the deer. Um, mm-hmm. Working on getting them, you know, in berms and, and raised beds and things like that. But that is going so much slower than I expected. Um, so- yeah, Arisa is, it's always a bit of a wimpy plant. Um, it's, uh, you know, an interesting plant, but it's it's always going to be uh, it's always going to be a little bit thin and a little bit unkempt. I guess is the word I would use, uh, you know, for its growth willing, habit. I was willing to live with that because when it blooms, it, it is one of my favorite fragrances. Um, and mm-hmm. and they're tiny tiny little things, but they they just float in the breeze and. You know, for me, oh, yeah. I, it was kind of worthwhile. Um, I'm wondering if well, I gathered, then, I've got then, two in two different pots, if I gathered them and kind of merge their strength when I put them in the ground, or should I keep them? Like, should they go in the ground or and do maybe better? I think or they will keep them in the pot. They will do better. They will do better in the ground, but put them in a somewhat protected area. Put them on the south side of your home rather than the north side, where it will get the really cold wind. Uh, but no, they'll always do better in the ground than they will in a pot. So they don't like a, that cool wind um, at all. They're going to be no. sensitive, maybe more more like the um, Mexican line that you mentioned, or. Um, probably, probably more like the lemons. Yeah, they're a little hardier than Mexican lime and a little less hardy than a Myers lemon. So, uh, protected area outside, but where they get good sun and feed them regularly. You know, has to grow or, you know, one of the good, uh, natural fertilizers would be really good for all of those things. I'll be doing it every couple of weeks. Okay. All right, then. I also probably erred on the side of underfeeding them. 
Um, yeah, no, it's they, they want to eat, so feed a little more okay. often and keep me posted on how they do. And uh, let me get a little break in here, and we'll be back and visit with Sharon and Brian and move right along there. I get to talk to you for a minute about Air Conditioning Service Company. I just love talking about these folks because I've known Ray and the principals over there for a long time. They have an incredible staff. The guys have been with them for many, many years. In fact, if you added up the total years of experience, they probably add up into centuries. And they work on every brand of air conditioner out there. And it's their mission to keep your system going as long as practical. Now, when it comes time for a newer system, for a more efficient system, them. Yeah, they will work you a wonderful deal, but their first priority is always going to be to maintain the system that you have. It's very important that you maintain those systems too, especially as we move into the fall. We only want we not only work on it working efficiently, but safely. And every year we hear about problems with carbon monoxide poisoning. We hear about fires, all sorts of things. It's just a real good idea to have your system checked out in the fall. Air Conditioning Service Company does a really good job of that and it's not one of these high pressure sales deals where they try to talk you into a new system before they even look at the old one. They are there to help you with what you have and I'll have to be there for you when it's time for a new system as well. They've got a lot of satisfied customers, a lot of great reviews, and you can always check them out online. I love their website, staycoolsa.com. If you have questions, feel free to give them a call, 210-796-9550 for Air Conditioning Service Company. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Chris and I did a little rearranging of signals during that break, so hopefully hopefully things sound even better now. Uh, We're going to talk to Sharon and Brian and Judy and Barbara. Sharon is up first. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning. Good morning. I have a ponytail plant that... I've had for a number of years, never have repotted it. And I'm wanting to know about any information I should know about repotting it. (laughs) Well, a ponytail plant can get quite large in a very small pot. So, yeah, the uh, I, I always tell people the only two times to really worry about repotting a plant are either that you can't get it to stand up, and we've got a couple of ponytails at the nursery that are about 10 feet tall, so I can understand that it could get that big, or if it's drying so quickly that uh, you know you just can't keep it properly watered. But uh, these are desert plants. They come out of the deserts of northeastern Mexico. They want a lot of light, and they're just, you know, as long as they're getting good light, very little goes wrong with them. If the bulb has not spread out, if the bulb's not within an inch or two of the side of the pot, I don't know that you really need to repot it. It it will get almost as big as the pot before it really needs a bigger pot. Well, it's the bulb is just about to the edge of the pot. <laughs> okay, well, then you may indeed want to think about putting it in a bigger pot, but uh, uh, but basically, no, don't go much bigger. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, exactly. You know, if you go uh, two inches bigger, how big a pot is it in now? About a, oh, maybe what? Just approximately. Two to three gallons. Yeah, it's no, about, I... It's about uh, two, let's see, about three foot tall. Yeah, I have it outside yeah. all summer. 
Yeah, and well, it'll need to come in for the winter. So if yeah. it's in a pot that's about 10 inches uh, across the top, uh, I would go no bigger than no bigger than a 14, maybe even to a 12. If you put it into a 14-inch pot, you probably wouldn't have to repot it for at least five years. In a 12-inch pot, you'd get two or three years before you had to repot it again. And again, it well, does not mind being... It's been in this pot for years and years and years. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, just go a couple of inches bigger on the pot. And, of course, you know, don't bury it any deeper when you get your new pot. Put yeah. soil in the bottom, set the your ponytail down into the pot and fill in around the edges only. And uh, it, it'll just kind of shrug its shoulders and say, well, okay, you didn't really, you're not making me great or any better, but I'll just go right on growing for you. So uh, they're, yeah. they're, they're neat plants. They're wonderful plants. Uh, many people don't give them enough light. And as you have discovered, they want lots and lots of light. And the fact that you've had it for several years tells me you know what you're doing with growing it. So just a slightly I larger I put pot. it on a patio in the wintertime uh, uh-huh. back away. And uh, so it gets, for, uh, it's a plastic-covered patio, like a greenhouse mm-hmm. type. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it gets plenty of light, you know, plenty of light, not indirect, but plenty of light all the winter long. Well, if I can tell you what you might look forward to, the biggest one I ever saw, there's a little town down outside of Brownsville, Texas, called Olmito. And a number of years ago, I visited an old man named Albert Wilson down there who had one in his front yard. The bulb was approximately 10 feet across. It had seven oh trunks, the biggest of which was about 25 feet tall. So you've, you've just got a junior-sized plant growing there. So we, we've got a lot of room to grow. And if it ever gets too big for your home, uh, you can just lop the top off of it, and it'll branch out and put on a whole new head. So uh, I don't recommend <laughs> that. But uh, when it gets up to your ceiling another 10 years from now, there are other options, and we'll talk about it at that time. All right. Sounds wonderful. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Sharon. Thank you. Bye. All right. Next up is Brian. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Bob. Can you hear me okay? I hear you loud and clear. Thanks, sir. Uh, Picked my first bunch of uh, beans off my uh, contender plants yesterday evening. And several of them have a hole from something in the uh, bean pod. Yeah. It's just a single hole about half the size of, of, of one of the beans inside the pod. Yep. It's a little uh, beetle. Got any ideas what it is? Yeah, it's probably a little black beetle, um, a flea beetle or something similar to that. I would either dust them good with diatomaceous earth or spray them with the spinosad soap. Um Spinosad soap's harmless to you. I would wash the beans before you eat them, but that's a very, very common issue. Uh, you occasionally also will have a little green caterpillar that will get after them, but you will see the caterpillar. When you open the bean, you'll actually see this little green caterpillar wiggling around inside there. The beetles tend to eat and leave, but uh, beetles, I go with spinosad soap. Actually, spinosad soap will take care of both problems. Spinosad's a good contact killer on caterpillars as well, but... Uh, kind of a common problem when you have a year as weird as this has been with wet dry wet hot cool hot um but uh you may you may want to go ahead and spray the whole row of them uh just to you know just to prevent the damage to as many of the beans as possible because i've seen them get out of hand to where you end up with problems with almost every one of them with me i usually find them in four or five of the beans at that point i spray and i don't see any more of them 
Okay, and then uh, do you continue to spray as more beans come on your plants? Not usually. Uh, at least I've not found it necessary. Everybody's garden's a little different, and you probably um, probably will want to pay a little more attention to them. I, I tend to neglect yeah. uh, really watching things between picking and eating, but if I have a problem show up, I'm going to make the make an effort to spend an extra 60 seconds looking real carefully at those plants, and you'll see the damage. If it's there, you'll see it, but rarely do I have to, ever have to spray beans more than one. Now, spider mites are another issue, uh, but we're getting beyond spider mite season. But uh, these little beetles, these little worms, it gets after them periodically. Usually, one spring will take care of them for the full season. Okay, and then another question. Um, my fall tomato plants, uh, most of the plants look really good and they're putting fruit on, but I've got one plant that it, it almost looks like somebody has sprayed the whole plant with a gray primer for a you know spray on primer like you'd put on metal or something it's not solid gray but it's real 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 splotchy gray over the entire plant on the leaves and everything is that something i need to worry about well it's a it's it's a fungal disease and um i probably I probably would just soak some whole ground cornmeal in water and spray with that. Uh, you could also spray with garlic. Uh, if you wanted to spray with neem, you could. It will reduce the production from the plant and eventually kill it. So uh, some varieties just seem to be more susceptible to it than others. But just think of it as a form of mildew. But, uh, again, in my garden, okay. I'd probably just make some corn water tea and spray, and that usually knocks it out with one or two sprayings at the very most. Okay. Go ahead, well, go ahead and spray all your tomatoes so when you spray because it could spread to other plants. Uh, the spores uh, float through the air, and that's how um, when, when you have a wet leaf, uh, Mother Nature has had a few nights lately when we got heavy dew on things, and right. that's when it spreads. Uh, the little fungal spore lands in that drop of water. So go ahead and, uh, and spray your other fall tomatoes, too, just to be sure it doesn't spread to your other yeah, plants. Yeah, because I got I got 12 plants set out there, and, and it's only on one plant, but it's from the ground all the way to the top of the plant, you know, and it just looks weird. And I, yeah. I thought, well, I'll ask my buddy Bob. He'll, he'll know what it is. That's what I would do, and I would do it soon to keep it from spreading to anybody else. All righty, Bob. Thanks. Have a great day. You do the same, Brian. I appreciate the call, and thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, uh, let's get a little break out of the way here. Julie will be up next when we come back. I get to talk to you for a moment about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And once again, I just don't tell you about them. I have one of the roofs on my home and have had for almost 20 years. Uh, we got a lousy metal roof on Shades of Green a lot of years ago before I knew about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. After a few years, it rusted out. That company would not honor the warranty. So what did we do? We called Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. We had, we'll have one of their roofs on our nursery for many years now with zero problems. My business partner and her husband have one of the roofs on their home. I used to just go on and on down the list of friends and family that have switched to Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And everybody just loves their roofs. Nobody worries about storms anymore. And so many people comment that they could not believe how reasonable it was. Plus, you save money on your utility bills. You save money on your insurance. But it's that peace of mind that just makes so much difference. Firecracker season, fireworks and all, hey, you're protected there. Storm season, you're protected there. 
uh, you know, they even have found that uh, should you have the misfortune of, a, say, a faulty heater and getting a fire started in the attic or something, metal roof's not going to burn through, and many times it will suppress the flames until the fire department can get there and put it out. You just live better with the Southwest Metal Roofing System's roof. Learn more by giving them a call, 210-822-6868, 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Uh, back to gardening and quickly back to the phone lines. Uh, Judy's up next. Good morning, Judy. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I keep thinking of more questions. Okay. My first question is, and this is a kind of a hindsight question. I planted a cucumber that did okay. And then it got the aphids, I mean, this fall. And it, mm-hmm. I just pulled it because it was just, I couldn't seem to, it just was covered. Okay. Does it attract them or what? Aphids reproduce very, very rapidly. They tend to get on plants that are stressed, and we've certainly had stressed with heat and drought. And uh, they can reproduce uh, extremely quickly. I would... You can't really say a cucumber attracts them, but cucumbers are much more prone to stress than something like a pepper plant or an eggplant or something like that, so they get them a little bit more often. But uh, once they find a plant and they can really start weakening it, and at that point they just go off the charts as far as reproduction. Okay. Okay. I do find that... Spinaced soap, yeah. Spin, soap will usually control it, but late summer it can be tough to control them. Okay, well that's good. I also planted some bok choy, and mm-hmm. do, and it's kind of look, it's really growing and maturing. Uh, but I'm thinking, it's not really going to keep producing much more after I cut the leaves that's on it. So, my question is, I guess, do I need to keep planting them? You can plant repeated crops. Some people, baby bok choy, people usually harvest the whole plant at one time. The bigger bok choy, just keep harvesting the outer leaves and let it produce more from the center. I'm going to get Chris to put you on hold. We'll talk a little bit more after the news. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening on a very nice Sunday morning. It's just uh, it's just a pretty day out there. Little humid. It's just it's amazing how much the uh, how much the weather can change from <laughs> from one day to the next. So, uh, uh, Chris, did uh, did Judy hold on? Where are we going to start right now? Okay, let's come back and uh, kind of had a rusher there at the end. So let's get another question or two. Good morning again, Judy. Good morning, Bob. Thank you. Okay, I need a house plant that does well in the house with these low E windows. Okay, and will the plant be sitting fairly close to fairly close to window? Would you call it bright light, moderate light? How much light does it get? Well, I'll give it the best bright light I can. Okay, as long as it grows. <laughs> Okay. Um, and are you looking for something that's going to grow 18 inches tall or ultimately 6 or 8 feet tall? Oh, probably bigger than 18 inches. Okay. A, a, okay. Nice, a nice leafy plant and then one that's taller. How does that sound? 
Okay. Well, for your taller plant, there are a number of broad-leafed uh, dracaenas. That's spelled D-R-A-C-A-E-N-A. And uh, some dracaenas take very bright light, but there's one that uh, grows very well with moderate light. That's called Dracaena Janet Craig, C-R-A-I-G, like a lady's name. And okay. it is, uh, it's a beautiful plant, very easy to grow, and it, it grows at a moderate rate of speed. And then there is another plant that it's, it's kind of compact cousin. It's called Dracaena Janet Craig Compacta, and it has smaller leaves, denser growth. I tell people if you can't grow the compacta, you're going to have to switch to plastic. It is just one of the easiest and best plants that you could ever grow, but it's a little slower growing, which makes it a little more expensive. And, um, but, uh, the, Janet Craig Compact is definitely one that you should take a look at because those are probably my two favorite taller plants as far as just easy, easy, easy house plants. Now, in the lower, fuller plants, I would look at, uh, there's a plant called the Chinese Evergreen, properly called Aglaonema. There are many varieties of Aglaonemas. Uh, there are the, for years, all we got had some variation of silver and green foliage, but today we're getting some that have a lot of pinks and even reds in the foliages. So uh, uh, Chinese Evergreen is going to be one of the easiest and best house plants, but I would describe them as lower and bushier. Uh, they can get up to three feet tall. They're not little miniature guys, but uh, um, they they are totally a different growth habit okay. than the others. And then for bushy, there is also the plant we call spathophyllum or peace lily or heaven forbid, some people call it a closet plant. It will not grow in the closet. But there, again, are uh, many varieties of spathophyllum. Some of them stay very compact. Uh, then there's one called sensation that gets even as much as three or four feet tall. But these are plants that are broader, that spread out. But uh, between the between the peace lilies and the uh, and the Chinese evergreens, those are probably going to be two of your easiest uh, for that filtered light situation. Okay, I I've tried peace lilies. Haven't had a lot of luck with them. Okay, uh, one last question. I have a yopon outside, and I guess I thought it was going to be. I wanted it to grow taller, bigger. And it's just been the slowest growing thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I've there are many forms there. of yopon. Yeah, there there are yopons that always stay small, that never grow large. My favorite of the t- of the taller ones. There's one called Pride of Houston, and that's the this variety I would. I'm sorry. It was Pride of Houston. Okay. Okay. Increase your fertilizer, um, and if it's getting good sun, they're not fast growing. But, uh, gosh, I'm sitting here looking out the window at one that's about 15 feet tall and covered with red berries now. So they will get larger, but uh, they will respond to fertilizer, but they're never going to grow as fast as, say, a xylosma or a crepe myrtle or something like that. Okay, because I, okay, I'll keep feeding. How about the water? Does it like a lot of water? It wants to be watered very thoroughly when that soil's dry an inch or two deep. They are very drought tolerant. They will put up, once they're established, they'll put up with very little water. But again, there's a big difference between surviving and thriving. And if you want it to really thrive, you need to water it uh, pretty regularly. Okay. Okay, thank you so much. 
Good luck with your houseplants, too, and let me know how they do for you, Judy. I appreciate your call. Thank you. Okay, uh, next up is going to be Barbara. Good morning, Barbara. Hello. Can you hear me? Hi. Yes, ma'am. Just fine. Hey. um, Okay, I have an asparagus uh, bed that's about four feet by eight feet. I've had for about four years. Okay. And it's produced fairly well every spring. Um, This summer, it seems like we lost about half of it. I mean, just, just gone. The other half is okay. So I have two questions about that. Um, what do I do with, <laughs> I've heard so many different opinions on what to do with the uh, asparagus that is still kind of growing, you know, fern-like. Mm-hmm. Um, when do I trim it back and uh, do I fertilize it now? And should I put in some additional asparagus now for the part <laughs> I love? It's, it's very hard to have too much asparagus. Asparagus likes lots of water. And when we have a dry mm-hmm. summer, if you're losing some of it, you're probably not watering often enough. Right, um, right. We were away from and I think that's what happened to you. I'm almost, I have experienced a bit of that in my own garden as well. Um, the thing about when to cut back and when not to cut back, obviously the big ferny growth, that's the same shoot that we could have eaten when it was tiny. Now, the longer it has the, you know, the nice big ferns on it, and they're not ferns, of course, they're asparagus, but uh, the longer it has foliage, the stronger it makes the root system and the, you know, the lower fleshier part of it, the stronger it is and the more you will be able to harvest from it next spring. So my rule mm-hmm. on cutting asparagus back is don't do it until about the time that it would normally be starting to put on a lot of new growth. Now, most winters where I live outside of Bernie, it freezes back. And once it's frozen back, I'll lop it down, you know, pretty close to ground level. If we have yeah, one mine of those unusual... I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. Uh, if we have one of those years when it doesn't freeze, then around the 1st of January, I'm going to cut it down to ground level just to force it to go back to making those nice, little, delicious, healthy shoots that it makes. But I'm not one, as long as it's an active growth in the fall, there's absolutely no reason to cut it back, and you're kind of depriving the plant of the opportunity to make and store more energy, which uh, okay. to me is not a good thing. I'm, I'm going to let it grow, and it just gets ugly. <laughs> there's just no other way to put it, but... Uh, we don't eat ugly. We, we eat the, the part of that comes out in the spring. So I'm not going right. to cut mine back unless it doesn't freeze. And if it doesn't freeze, I'm going to wait till January to cut it back. Okay, great. And one, one last question. Uh, we have some red tip, whatever they're called, Photinas, Photinas. Uh-huh. Photinia. Um, probably about, um, probably, about uh, gosh, probably 15 of them um, between our, ourselves and a neighbor one area um, that we'd like to kind of have a little bit of barrier. And the deer have finally, you know, the last few years, we've, they've been in for 25 years, but the deer have now decided the last few years they would eat them. So, you know, they got really top heavy and now they're just kind of dying. So bottom line, we just need to take them out. They're very ugly. So I'm wondering what else we could put in that would be evergreen, that would be eight to 10 feet high um, for about a 20, you know, 20, 25 foot length area. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, here is the deal with deer. You know, deer, if you have a huge overpopulation, deer will eat almost anything, even things that are poisonous to them if they, uh, right. if they get hungry enough. And so the issue is, is deer control. Now, the plant that I would love to see you plant, far, far better plant than uh, the Fotenia ever thought of being, is Xylosma. 
and uh, it's spelled X-Y-L-O-S-M-A. Had a caller this morning, proud of his being able to say xylosma, but I always tell him it's just like xylophone, X-Y. Xylosma Mm -hmm. is fast-growing. It's dense. It has virtually no problems. The deer will avoid it unless the deer are super hungry, in which the case the deer will go after it. And uh, it'll grow, if you don't prune it, it'll grow 15, 20 feet tall. It makes a great six or eight foot hedge. The problem with Photinia is it does not like to be pruned. You start pruning your Photinia, it gets this disease called Entomosporium, which is probably what yours have, and it eventually Mm -hmm. just dies. It's, to me, one of the worst plants that was ever introduced to this area. But uh, (laughs) Xylosma is fast growing, and it's going to give you a big hedge you know pretty quickly so that is one that i would definitely look at now if you have a just enormous overpopulation of deer and the neighbors feed them and bring them in so they will then eat your plants um, the only plant that i will tell you is just almost a hundred percent deer proof is a type of viburnum it's called viburnum suspensum also known as sandanqua viburnum go drive around fair oaks <laughs> it's it's about the only shrub that you're going to see there is Zyla or uh, okay. a viburnum suspensum and mountain laurels but uh it is one it's going to get about six feet it's not going to get nearly as big as xylosma will but uh it's it's as close to being deer proof as far as eating now recognize too this time of year the damn male deer are out there whipping the stuff up and they they rub their antlers on trees marking them as well as rubbing the velvet off and they can kill the young oak tree if they're rubbing on it too much and i you know i was walking around my ranch on my day off this week and there are two or three shrubs out there shrubby uh plants mainly persimmons or just beat the heck uh, from the deer carrying on their fall activities. So uh, deer are an issue. Deer are a big issue. But if uh, if you can manage the deer, Xylosma is going to be my first choice for your hedge that you're trying to replace. Okay. Perfect. Well, we'll give it a try. And both of these are fairly fast-growing, too. Also, the viburnum. Viburnum is moderate in its growth rate. And it, like I say, it overall, it doesn't get as big. But uh, mm-hmm. it's not a slow grower. But, you know, I... I'm, recalling one customer down in uh, uh, King, not King William, but down in Monta Vista that, oh, got a couple of xylosmas from us who were about three feet tall. He told me the next spring they were between five and six feet tall when he was pruning them lightly. The next spring they were like seven to eight feet tall. If you want to see a giant one, uh, we of course have a strip center next door to us here at Shades of Green. Uh, The one that has never been pruned that's right in front of that probably is close to 20 feet tall and 15 to 18 feet wide that's what xylosma will do if you just let it grow i i recommend not constant pruning but a little shaping every year or two just to keep them uh growing the way you want them to grow and they do not resent that at all okay great well i appreciate your help thanks so much Always a pleasure, Barbara. Thank you for the call today. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, let me get a break out of the way, and then uh, we'll talk to Mike and Joseph and move right down the list. I get to talk to you about Medina Agriculture, and don't forget to fertilize. I know it's easy to do. We're getting into a super busy time of year, but... 
Let me tell you, it's hard for me to imagine anyone more busy than I am, and I still find time to put out the Medina fertilizer. I'm always late, but I get it out there, so don't expect it to do any good while it's in the bag. But if you want your grass to be better and stronger for the winter, if you want to put your shrubs and trees to sleep with a, a good nutrient supply to make a strong start in the spring, fall fertilizing is just the single most important feeding of the year, and Medina makes an outstanding certified organic fertilizer called Growing Green that's a great thing to use. Medina makes many other products as well. They're liquid fertilizers, which is what I follow up with after planting the vegetable and flower gardens, what I use on my orchids. Uh, they make soil activator and the improved form of that called Medina Plus, which is great to speed up the compost pile and to soften the soil in general. They package some of the best orange oil, in fact, the best orange oil out there. They package great molasses and uh, liquid seaweed. Medina Ag has been right here in our area for over 50 years. Their products are sold and used worldwide, but I think they work best right here at home. You want to go to a full list of everything they offer? We'll go to medinaag.com. Just visit a good nursery, though. Check out those products and trust anything that says it's from Medina Agriculture. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Well, I can certainly sympathize with Regina, whose phone keeps cutting off on her. So uh, uh, since she's called and and phone's given up a couple of times, I'm going to make her first. And then it'll be Mike and Joseph and Steve. But uh, we'll get Regina's last question first of all. Good morning again. Hi. Thanks so much. Um, can you hear me okay? I hear you just fine. Okay, great. Um, I was wondering uh, along the lines of, um, okay, so, um, where is it? Oh, I lost my note. It's, it's, um, my, can, what can you tell me about the Tythonia and the Chili the Audible, um, I'm I'm growing a chili that both of them I started out successfully and then they they're they've had problems and I I think it's maybe the mildew that you're talking about but also it did when it was so hot or um, weeks ago um, they got stressed with um, getting a little dry red yes and they got stressed with the um, those little spider, the red spider. Yeah, red spider. Well, it's it's hard to generalize when you're talking about peppers because they are such a huge family, and some mm-hmm. of them are, you know, cool weather plants, the hatch chilies that everybody wants to grow. You can't grow them unless mm-hmm. you move to New Mexico. They're tough here. Chile arbol should do well here, but um, it's, you know, the, the secrets to all of the peppers uh, is don't, plant them when you plant your tomatoes. I always try to plant peppers about a month after I plant tomatoes because they are they are more hot weather plants and you want to get them off to a good strong start. Uh, all the peppers like very bright sun, all the peppers like very regular watering. Uh, when that soil is dry on the surface, it's time to give them another thorough watering. You don't, don't let them dry out. Let them, uh, mm-hmm. you know, grow them pretty much exactly like you would an eggplant or tomatoes or other things. Now, some of them are going to like the slightly cooler weather, things like your, uh, bell peppers, all the bell peppers, most of your sweet peppers, uh, banana peppers included, they're going to just absolutely do beautifully for you in the fall because they like it when the nights cool off. Your chile arbol, your jalapenos, um, 
most all of your hot peppers are going to start going into a decline. Now, obviously, we're not into real cool weather yet. We're supposed to be close to 90 this afternoon. I don't think it's going to make mm-hmm. it unless the sun comes out. But uh, we are toward the end of the season. But the general rule with peppers is feed frequently, water whenever the soil is good and dry on the surface, and give them lots and lots of sunlight. Your bigger ones, I know my poblanos will frequently reach the top of a five-foot tomato cage. So your bigger ones will need support. But beyond mm-hmm. that, it's really Real hard to generalize, but I wouldn't expect okay. too much more out of a chili, chili arbols for the fall. But uh, next summer, watch your watering, feed a little bit more often, and you should uh, be ready for a roadside stand selling peppers. It'll do so well for you. Okay. It, uh, I was surprised. They don't usually like them this hot, but their flavor mm-hmm. is actually, um, I, I was really pleased, and it was uh, kind of a first try. And yeah. um, then I came across this. Mexican sunflower torch called yeah. Tithonia, and it was Tithonia. It's been a fun uh-huh. plant. Yeah, Tithonia. and it's a beautiful orange color, too. Beautiful color. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I was just um, basically, I'm wondering, it's, it's waning now. It's, um, yeah. So. Like like all sunflowers, you want to plant it after freezing weather is gone in the spring. And it grows just like a sunflower. It grows rapidly. It blooms beautifully with those orange flowers. And then it goes into a decline. It is not an all-summer plant. I mean, some of the things we plant, the celosia, the uh, coxcomb, the, you know, lots of the zinnias, a lot of the newer varieties, we plant those once and they produce throughout the warm season but tithonia is not that way it's spectacular while it's growing but just like sunflowers it has its day and then it goes into a decline and either plant some more or you say wait till next year okay the the seeds that have i've I've let a few of them kind of go to seed Mm -hmm. you know get mature seeds will that grow again or just wasting my time there well you'll need to collect the seeds and replant next spring if you just leave them on the plants uh, the birds will pretty much come eat them all especially blackback goldfinches really like them so uh but it's worth planting and you get yourself a package of seed and you'll have all the neighbors saying what is that plant because most people have never seen it and it's such a brilliant orange Oh, Regina, I'm glad we got you back on. Thank you. You let me you. let me move on and talk to uh, Mike, who's been waiting. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, uh, Bob. A cool Sunday morning. <laughs> well, uh, a moderate Sunday morning. Uh, it's not chilly, but it is pleasantly cool compared to what it has been. Yes, it has. Uh, Bob, I got kind of confused here several callers back. You and a, a man uh, kept calling each other goat heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, can you uh, verify any of that for me? Uh, well, that's that's a common name for the common sticker burr. Um, most of the names that people use for it are not repeatable by FCC standards, but uh, goat heads or sand burrs, some people call them. They're just the nasty, you know, sticker burrs that, that just grow profusely, produce a profusion of Seeds, it can be quite painful if you get into them, but uh, goat heads are just uh, named for one of the larger growing sticker burrs. Well, I tell you what, it's kind of backfired on me. Old Charlie put me up to this. Uh, y'all were saying, go ahead, and I say, you call them goat heads? <laughs> 
Well, oh. Chris was telling me we, we had a little uh, phone line problem earlier, so may, maybe it's not all entirely old Charlie's fault or whatever, but no. <laughs> go ahead. And go. <laughs> oh, there are many jokes based around uh, mishearing certain things, but we better not go there. But no, people that, ha- and I have had several callers ask about goat heads lately. That uh, uh, So, yeah. It's, well, it's good that's, to that's learn that. So short. there is a little sticker bird referred to as a goat head, huh? Absolutely. And it's oh. not especially little, and it is very, very painful to get into. So it's it's not a friend of the gardener. Oh, Bob, a couple of uh, callers back, I think her name was Judy, was asking for an indoor plant. Mm-hmm. And I have a fica tree that does quite well. It's in a window, but it is shaded by a patio covered. And it's been there for several years. It's about mm-hmm. four feet tall. Uh, well, I I normally, I love ficus. The whole ficus family are beautiful. But she indicated her light was pretty moderate. And uh, if, if your light is stronger than you think, or your ficus benjamina wouldn't be doing well. Uh, but obviously it's, it's happy in its situation. But uh, ficus to me are... Our bright light plants, biggest one I ever saw of those was about 100 feet tall and about 75 feet wide. So they do get quite large, but they are tropical plants. And generally speaking, I, I kind of make it if people tell me they have uh, super bright light, I'll believe them. If they tell me they have bright light, I think moderate. If they tell me it's moderate, I think lower. And uh, ficus tree is not for the person that doesn't have... Uh, a a fairly bright spot and keep in mind too that light is cumulative it's better to have it kind of bright all day long than it is to have it super bright for 15 minutes and then darker the rest of the day so if your plant's doing well you know leave it where it is but uh, many people have trouble with different ficus whether it's benjamina or fiddle leaf or rubber plant uh, because you're not getting enough light the other thing is that unfortunately there's still people that buy their plants from box stores and grocery stores and ficus are a very popular one because they can grow those down in Dade County, Florida, out in full sun very, very rapidly. But a plant develops a different leaf in a shadier area than it does in full sun. And when you bring, let's say you bring two ficus home, one of them was grown in full sun, the other was grown, you know, in a shaded greenhouse. The one that was grown in full sun is not going to adapt to your home at all, no matter what you do, because it needs more light than you could ever give it. If you're lucky, all those leaves will fall off, and it'll make some leaves that are more accustomed to the light that you have. But the plant, we, we specify every house plant we get in the Bright Light Group has to spend its life under at least 70% shade, because these don't have to go through that big transition. So anyway, that's an awful lot about ficus, but uh, I love them. But uh, in general, I recommend them for fairly bright areas. Well, I do have a couple of skylights, so that probably answers mm-hmm. part of that. <laughs> Absolutely. One other thing. Uh, a lady called in earlier and mentioned a moringa tree. Uh-huh. That, and recently, I have received some seeds from an acquaintance that uh, she was telling me she grows them, and when they get about six feet tall, she cuts them in half takes the leaves and such, grinds them up, capsulizes them. She said it's very good for arthritis. Do you have any take on that? Well, knock on wood, I'm not an arthritis sufferer, so it's not something I have 
personal knowledge of. I know that it does have medicinal qualities, but I'd have to ask my friends over at Rhonda's Nature's Way as to how safe it is and how effective it is. So uh, I'm going to have to plead ignorance on that one. It, uh, well, but it it's one of those uh, kind of a traditional folk remedy, but um, I and I think it's it's used for things even beyond arthritis. But I don't don't have uh, much personal knowledge on it at all, Mike. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think it's from India, either India or uh, the Philippines. I'm not really I, sure. I'd I have, have here on my to. note to uh, see Rhonda and ask her about it yeah, and uh, go from there. I well, think that would be a great idea. Well, all right, then. I appreciate your talking and putting up with my Charlie Silly stuff. <laughs> the world does not laugh enough, especially these days, and uh, I'm just thinking of the jokes that I need to tell Dr. Kirby, and uh, he has one of his employees that appreciates jokes that you sometimes have to think about, so I will leave you with my Halloween story of the skeleton that walked into a bar and said to the bartender, hey, give me a beer and a mop. Yeah, <laughs> Think about that one, <laughs> and you go have a good day. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. I tell you, time flies when you are having fun, and it is always fun visiting with everybody on Saturday and Sunday mornings, talking about one of our favorite activities. Well, more than one, gardening and nature and things like that. Ah, we're down to the last 30 minutes of the show, and we're going to talk to Joseph and Steve and Charles, and uh, Joseph is up first. Good morning, Joseph. Good morning. Uh, I'm, I'm calling right now because I have a problem with my Arizona ash tree. and uh, Okay. Uh, it's doing pretty good uh, other than uh, I saw some uh, like little uh, German roaches. I had uh-huh. never seen roaches on a tree. So uh, would you know how to treat that, how to get rid of them? Well, roaches are, you know, they just love anywhere that has some dead wood and, uh, you know, they can get in and hide and kind of burrow down into it. I normally control roaches uh, spraying with orange oil, uh, just yeah. orange oil and water. I'll put like uh, one to two tablespoons of orange oil and, uh, and spray anywhere that I see the roaches, and it, it pretty much knocks them out uh, very, very quickly. Uh, and that's what I would do outdoors. Now, indoors, I go after them with boric acid and a little bit of sugar. But if they're hanging around an um, Arizona ash, again, I wouldn't mix it too strong. Maybe about two tablespoons of orange oil to a gallon of water. Spray the area where you're seeing them, and that should uh, totally eliminate roaches and fire ants and any other undesirable critters you got in there. Okay, that's good, because we had never seen him before. This is the first time that we see him. We were watering the, the yard. And then I, I well, we you've never you've the, never lived in Florida. Down there, they call them palmetto bugs, because they don't want to admit that a roach gets that big. So I'll tell you, you're fortunate. Most people uh, have had experiences with them, but uh, uh, this, you know, as you observe, this has been a kind of a, a worse year than usual for roaches of all sorts and I think your exterminators will probably tell you the same thing but I'm not into getting out the big poisons to try to get rid of them. A uh, little orange oil normally takes care of them and hopefully this is not only the first year but the last year you'll see them around that tree. Yeah we've been here 23 years. This is the first time I've seen oh, wow. it. So I guess we're kind of like- <laughs> 
Uh, I say you're a lucky man because most folks have experienced them a lot more than that. So whatever you're doing, keep up the good work. The orange rose should take care of them out around that tree, and uh, I hope you go another 23 years without seeing them. Okay, Bob. Thank you. I have one more question. Small question. I have a, Go right ahead. I have a, shade, a lot of shade on one part of the house, uh-huh. and the grass keeps dying. Is there any kind of seed for grass that I could put for, for there's too much shade? I have not. A, yeah, there's not a permanent grass that you can plant from seed that's good for the shade. But if you want just some grass for the winter months. Um, you can get one of what they call winter rye. Now, there are a lot of different ones. Uh, the variety that I'm recommending this year is called Top Flight. Uh, it is, uh, it gets moderate in height. I would never plant Oregon rye. It gets just big and thick and just chokes down your mower. But, uh, get one of the dwarfer forms of ryegrass. You can sprinkle it out for the winter months. It'll stay green up in the spring until the weather gets really hot. And at that point, we can talk about what you could put in there in the way of a permanent grass. But if you just want to have less mud and have something green out there for the winter, yeah, I'd, I'd plant one of the dwarfer ryegrasses. Okay, I think that's about all the questions I have. Uh, thank you for, for everything, and you have a good day. You do the same. Always a pleasure, Mr. Smith, to you. Okay, uh, next up is Steve. Good morning, Steve. Yes, sir. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Uh, Bob, i got a question. I have this pretty good size oleander. It don't mm-hmm. get many blossoms, and when it does, they don't stay on very long. I was wondering what I can do to nourish it. And also, I noticed these uh, round things growing off the end of some of the branches or stems, whatever we call them. Yeah, they're, kind they're of like a round pod that's about six inches long. It, yeah, about the diameter of a pencil, and it curves yeah. like a banana. Yeah. Do I need yeah. to cut those off, or what is that? I haven't seen that Well, that's, that's a seed pod. That's a seed oh. pod, and oleanders will periodically make seed. They will bloom more if you cut those off because the plant is okay. either going to put its energy into making seed or uh-huh. into making more flowers, which, is, of course, is what the plant's trying to do is reproduce. Is your oleander out in full sun? Uh, pretty much in the morning. It gets the east sun, but then the sun goes over the house. It shades yep. then. And and that's one reason that you don't have more flowers because oleanders, <clears throat> excuse me, they want the hottest, brightest, sunniest place oh. that you can find for them. So uh, oh, yeah. uh, if you're getting some flowers, um, you're you're doing better than some folks would. So I don't think oh, there's really yeah. a lot you can do to change that. If you plant any more, plant them out where they get that blazing afternoon sun all day long. That afternoon sun, okay. Yeah, hey, that's what they really want. For that. But, but what, cutting um, off those seed pods will make them, yeah, cutting off seed pods will make them bloom a, a little bit more because uh, they put their energy into making more flowers. So I chop those off and I'll be better off then down the line. Yes, sir. Okay, I can do that. And how many, is there a bunch of different varieties of that? Or I know there's different colors. Oh, there are lots and lots of varieties of oleanders. Uh, there are some dwarf ones these days that are absolutely gorgeous and some really, really, really? rich colors. Uh, the problem is the dwarf ones are not as cold hardy. They've done very well here the past few years because it's been a number of years since we had a really cold winter. 
Right. But uh, you know, I've I've been around this area long enough to to see some colder winters, and I I wouldn't try them where I live in Bernie because we're like ten degrees colder up there sometimes. But uh, uh-huh. the dwarf ones are absolutely wonderful plants to put around a swimming pool or somewhere like that. It's oh, just tropical get- color. Uh, they get about three feet. Oh, okay. That's not real bad. Yeah. And then there are many, many different ones. I don't go overboard with oleanders, though, because there's a new disease they're getting called bacterial leaf scorch. And okay. uh, I have not seen a lot of it, but uh, California, the growers out there have just stopped producing oleanders because it's such a serious problem. But then again, California has a lot of problems that uh, hopefully will keep out of Texas. But I, I love oleanders mixed into the landscape. I love oleanders as a pot plant where you're looking for super bright light. Now, they are toxic. I wouldn't want them around your kids or grandkids. But uh, I, I just don't tell anybody to go plant a 50-foot row of oleanders because if we do get the bacterial leaf scorch, you'll be planting mm-hmm. something else. But in general, they're, yeah. they're a good plant. But put them in the sunniest area you have, and you'll do, you'll do a lot better with them, Steve. So the dwarf ones need just as much sun, too. To yes, sir. Yes, sir. All your sun. oleanders want lots of sun. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, who do you recommend to get those from? Any good nursery. Any oh, good nursery. Okay. We've got some good nurseries around San Antonio. Are, are you in San Antonio? No, I'm actually up by Northcliffe. Okay. 1103 North, almost New Braunfels, actually. Yeah. You might there. try the plant house. You might try plant house there in New Braunfels. Uh, uh, Weston usually has pretty good selection of things. If you don't want to drive into San Antonio, you've at least got one good nursery up in that area. Okay. Plant house, huh? Yeah. All righty. Well, thank you so much for your help. I appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. You get out and have a good Sunday, and we'll talk again. And uh... South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, we are back to gardening. First thing you know, it'll be time to be talking pets, and Dr. Kirby will be in here very shortly, but we do have time for a little more gardening, so we'll talk to Charles and Rees and then see where we go. Uh, good morning, Charles. Uh, good morning, sir. Good morning. Hey, uh, I, I was at a mechanic shop the other day, and I picked up some acorns, and they're, uh-huh. the, they're, they're the big ones with us kind of a casing around them that fall on the ground. Do you know what kind of tree that is? Are, does uh, We call that casing, we call that the cap. Does it almost totally cover the acorn, or does it cover maybe the top half, maybe a little bit more than the top half of the acorn? Uh, it, it goes all the way up where you barely see the tip. Okay. Uh, there is, big. yeah, uh, the, and, and this is here in San Antonio? Yes, sir. You know, I've only seen a couple of them. You know, I decided to pick some up while I was getting a new bumper put on. <laughs> That's, it's a good plan. It's almost certainly a burr oak, B-U-R, uh, and some of them can get almost as big as a golf ball. They produce probably the largest uh, acorn in this area. Now, there's one that grows more up toward Dallas, 
and it's called the Overcup Oak. And it almost, the acorn itself is almost totally obscured by the cap. But that one that's just like, you know, 70 to 90 percent around it, that is almost certainly a bur oak. It is a very good tree for this area. It's not super fast growing. It, um, you know, it, it it's going to be about like a live oak, maybe just a little bit slower than a live oak, but certainly not as fast growing as a cedar elm or a Mexican live oak or some of those. So uh, it's gonna, you have to be patient with it, but uh, it is a good tree. It does not get oak wilt. Uh, typically, they grow fairly easily from acorns, so uh, by all means, plant them in individual pots. Uh, I probably would put uh, put them in like one gallon containers, leave them outside for the winter, water occasionally, plant them oh maybe two or three inches deep, about like a squirrel would do. And okay. uh, speaking of speaking of, you'll need to put some chicken wire or something over uh, that pot because uh, you know a squirrel finds one of those and it they think it's Thanksgiving and they've got a feast prepared before them. Uh, <laughs> I'm yeah, laughing because uh, I remember. To be honest with you, Bob, I kind of feed the squirrels around here a little bit. You know, I don't have anything to really do much gardening here because so much yeah. shade. Mm-hmm. And man, one took off with this thing. And he did think it was Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a friend that uh, was so excited. A friend had given her about twenty of these things. And she planted them all in individual pots, put them out on her deck, and like two days later, I must have been a family of squirrels came through and stole and ate every one of them. So uh, if you want to try growing them, uh, you can certainly do so, but just just put a little chicken wire, hardware cloth or something over them until they sprout and start growing. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I think you'll find that to be a, a burr oak. It's a deciduous oak, and it's a, a very good tree for this part of the country. Okay. the I mean, like, do I put the the put it in the ground, sticking up with a casing on it, just like it is? You or know, do I peel off you, that casing and scratch it like y'all do on some seeds. I I wouldn't scratch it. I wouldn't scarify it. But if okay. you can if you can carefully get that cap off, it will grow a little faster. Now, obviously, uh, Mother Nature left the cap on and. Um, Sometimes when you when you work to get the cap off, you'll find a little bit of webbing down underneath, and you'll find that a little caterpillar is burrowed into the acorn proper. If that's right. the case, then that one's not going to sprout and grow. But right. uh, most of the time, if the if the acorn is fully mature, it'll be sort of loose underneath that cap. You plant it them, is. and uh, uh, yeah, you should be just fine. If you ever decide to do a bunch of them. Uh, one thing we do is, you know, say you had a hundred of them, throw them in a bucket of water. The ones that sink are going to be the best ones. Those are the ones that are going to sprout and grow first. And that's how we usually check for viability on acorns. But, uh, most of the burrows are pretty good. And as long as you don't see that little worm hole in the top of them, uh, I'd probably just, just plant them. Like say, protect them from the squirrels, keep them warm and, uh, may not sprout until spring, but they'll sprout and make a nice tree for you. All right, Bob. I sure do appreciate it. And twenty years from now, I guess if the old world's still here and Jesus ain't come, got us, I'll tell you about the tree. 
Well, and just watch out that you don't get conked on the heads because you'll have plenty of them falling off your tree plenty 20 years from now. So anyway, and hopefully you won't need a new bumper to go go visiting the mechanic again anytime soon, Charles. You get out and have a great Sunday, and uh, you keep me posted along the way. And, uh, yeah, we'll probably finish up calls today. That'll give me a little bit of time to talk about a couple of things at the end. But we want to get in a visit with Rees. Good morning, Rees. Good morning, Bob. I have Good one morning. simple question about garage juice. Okay. I was reading in Dirt Doctor newsletter, he says to drench the soil with garret juice. Mm-hmm. So do you dilute this with water? I'm sure we yes. do, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. If your garret juice is not an exact formula, garret juice is a combination of uh, anywhere from three to six different things you can put in there. Now, uh, Howard originally started out, you know, doing this. Uh, you know, and just recommending people that you go out and mix your own. And so many people really like the results that they started packaging, bottling uh, Garrett juice. So now you can buy Garrett juice. You can find a variety of it that has a little bit more in it called Garrett Juice Plus. So that's and then you what can I actually. Have. Okay, that's a good one. Uh, the the supreme top of the line is Garrett Juice Pro, which has uh, you know some mycorrhizal fungus in there as well. But most of us, what I use more is Garrett Juice Plus, and uh, you'll normally put about two ounces to a gallon of water. So, um, and you know, and and I and I will sometimes. Uh, even enhance it a little bit. I'll mix it up, and I'll think, well, I want a little extra seaweed in here, so I'll just pour a little more in. And sometimes I'll add a little bit more molasses to it. It's not an exact formulation. It's not uh, like some of the different things we use for controlling insects or diseases or things like that. It's it's just sort of a tonic, so to speak. And uh, it's one of those things that I don't measure (laughs) You know, I, okay. I, I figure I figure an ounce is about a jigger, and I try to pour about that much into the watering can. But if you get a little too much or a little too little, don't worry. Okay. And the other question was about uh, uh, satsuma. What kind of a plant is that? I'm totally ignorant about it. <laughs> a satsuma is it's a tangerine. Oh, a tangerine. Um, yeah, it's uh, they are sort of a medium-sized tangerine, and there are a number of satsumas out there. Uh, they're two of the most popular. One of them is called Miho. The other one is called M-I-H-O. The other is called Seto, S-E-T-O. Very a little bit in... Uh, uh, in in shape, the original one of them that uh, Malcolm Beck uh, championed was called a Changsha, and the problem with Changsha is that it was loaded up. I mean, every one of those things that have fifteen or twenty seeds in it, so wow. you know you got a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, meat and spitting seeds everywhere. But the the Miho, the Sito, there's another one called uh, Kimbro. There's another one that's called Brown Select, I believe. But the thing that makes uh, the Satsumas nice is that they are normally cold hardy here. They'll go down into the upper teens without any damage whatsoever. So unlike lemons and limes that we may wind up protecting if we have a cold winter, typically the uh, Satsumas can be planted out in the yard and you don't have to worry about them. Oh, thank you, Bob, for all your help. You always educate us. Well, that's you. you know, I, I was I was talking with a couple of friends lately and said that uh, in my in my old school days when I was uh, a graduate student, I said I learned two things. One of them is that I learned to teach, and the second one is that I would not tolerate the politics of the university system. So that's when I got back in the nursery business. But 
I love the fact that uh, you know I have the opportunity to help people grow things better. So if I'm educating you, then I'm accomplishing my purpose. Reese, I hope you have a wonderful weekend, and I know we'll thank visit you. again. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Thank you.